fortunate to be able to benefit from Professor Elling's expertise, and I look forward to your talk. Thank you so much. I'm very, very happy to finally, as just told you at the program, this is the first time in three or four years that I'm traveling abroad to give an academic talk, so I'm more, I'm more nervous than I, than I usually am. I'm very grateful for the invitation and for this, the organization of this event, and I'm sorry we have to compete with the, with the World Cup. I, I understand that we can we can maybe still have time to watch the very important game between the great Satan <laughs> and, uh, and Iran later. Um, I feel like the more I work on Iran, the less I actually know. And that's a problem coming from a tiny country like Denmark that can only apparently afford two professors in Iranian studies, which means that when something happens in Iran, we are bombarded with questions from the public and media requests for media attention and commentary. We are expected to know and understand everything about Iran. Ruling elite thinking, gender legal practices, football politics, uranium enrichment, protest cultures, and to be honest, trying to make sense for a Danish public about what is what I believe and understand from, from secondary sources, obviously being at a distance going on in Iran right now, is what I've been doing for the last 70 days, is to sort of to, to try and provide, uh, try and inject whatever meager input I could generate from a distance about the, the situation in Iran right now. Because obviously, as all of you uh, know, something historic <laughs> is going on in Iran today, and a historic uprising against the Islamic Republic is taking shape, spearheaded by women, and uniting a cross-country, cross-class, cross-ethnic movement that is arguably the first of its kind in history. And the center of the demand, of course, is Zandigi Ozadi in Persian, Women Life Freedom, as a key to unlock a range of struggles that are no longer treated as separate from each other. The struggle for women's equality, the struggle against discrimination of minorities, the struggle for civil rights, and a centuries-long struggle for democracy, and we have some of the finest scholars in, in this room tonight who can talk much more about that. A struggle for all the things that the Islamic Republic is not capable of giving its citizens. And when Gina Amini, forcibly named Mahsa Amini by the authorities, was buried, her mother put the following on the gravestone. Gina, you will not die. Your name will become a symbol. And that has indeed happened. Gina is the symbol, the key that locks together different demands. It's also a key that unlocks 43 years of pent-up rage and desire for a better future for Iran. Her name has become a catalyzer for a mass movement of civil disobedience. So when journalists call me up and ask me what happens next, I shelter behind my role as a historian and I remind them of the unpredictability of revolutions. And yet I have to say at the end of the day that nothing will ever be the same again. And I, I, I think so much is clear by this stage after uh, more than two months of, of protests in Iran. The movement started with the death of this Kurdish Iranian woman and with a brave protest during Gina's burial in her hometown of Sakhbez, in the heart of Iranian Kurdistan on 17th of September. It quickly spread to the rest of the country with slogans such as 
If Tehran becomes Kurdistan, Iran becomes Kurdistan, or a flower garden. And in Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan is awake, standing beside Kurdistan. And another slogan that we've heard a lot is Kurdistan, the graveyard of fascists, which, of course, uh, really resonates with the research I want to talk with you about today. And above all, the, the movement has united around this uh, slogan, which was originally a Kurdish slogan, and has now been embraced as an all-Iranian slogan, and it's exactly in that friendship from Kurdish to national that we are going to talk about today. As always with protest movements in modern Iran, repression is unequally distributed, roughly speaking, rubber bullets, batons, and tear gas for people in the center, with many exceptions, live bullets, tanks, and military repression for the periphery. Kurdistan has seen some of the most violent clampdown. Baluchistan has experienced massacre. Iranians everywhere are being brutally repressed, but in terms of number, the ethnic minority regions are suffering the most. I think what is important here is that this time around, there seems to be an awareness of this fact in the broader public. And again, this is based on anecdotal evidence and what I hear from friends and what I read other experts who are much closer to this saying. I'm under no illusion that all segments of protesters are aware of ethnic discrimination or that they all move in solidarity with the struggles of minorities, but I do believe strongly, and I'm not alone in this thinking, that something is changing in this regard. Reporters and observers and participants all say that in comparison with earlier protest movements, such as the student movement in 99 or the Green movement in 2009, there is a pronounced sense of solidarity, uh, solidarity between center and periphery. And unlike 2017 and 19, there is a clear sense of unity between members of the middle classes and the working classes. So we're witnessing the unfolding of a new political culture. And I think history can teach us that this unfolding in itself is fraught with challenges and dangers and pitfalls. So in line with this thinking uh, about sort of trying to make historical research relevant to a moment that seems historic, for lack of a, a better phrasing, and about how current events sometimes make your research seem urgent and pertinent, I decided to slightly change the topic, like uh, you said, uh, Dr. Cronin, and focus on one of the two things I had originally planned. So my original plan was to discuss what Iranian history can provide in terms of insights for global history, including global intellectual history and global urban history, and in turn what we can learn in, as historians of Iran from global history. And I think we can discuss that maybe in the Q&A as, as an extension of this. And because when I sent my abstract for this, it was just before the, uh, the Jigaramini uprising started. And I propose to talk about two examples of my research on the Sawazmone Charikoi Fadoi Khal, the Iranian People's Fadoi Organization, and I will henceforth call them the Fadois and the Fadoyon uh, tonight. So I will instead focus on one example tonight. So a couple of years ago, I got funding with uh, my colleague Suna Halfbrunner from the Roskilde University Center for a project exploring what we first termed the end of third worldism in the Middle East which quickly turned into the fate of third worldism in the Middle East, originally with a focus on 79, but quickly, as you can see in the title of the book that's going to come out of this project, we also had to include another year. We revisit this moment in time when the power of third worldism as an ideology or a worldview and an umbrella for a broad range of anti-imperialist movements at once peaked and dramatically declined in the Middle East. 
a region where it had up until then represented a strong promise for change. So what we did is we got a broad range of scholars, some of them also from here, to look at the late 1970s and early 1980s with a focus on two different struggles for national liberation in West Asia, namely Palestine and Iran. And that not only were pivotal to political developments in the broader region, but also of great significance to a global solidarity movement, which was one of the key interests we had in this, in this topic. So in Iran and Palestine, opposition and liberation movements saw themselves and were seen by their supporters all over the world as holding a torch lit by the anti-colonial rebellions of the 50s and carried through the 60s and 70s by an array of socialist and nationalist revolutions and revolutionary states, guerrilla organizations, popular uprisings, student rebellions, activist campaigns, artistic, intellectual, and academic activism that spanned from Vietnam to Angola, Havana to Algeria, and Paris, and beyond. And yet, by the early 1980s, the two movements in Iran and Palestine have arguably failed to bring about the progressive vision of freedom and independence they have been seen by protagonists and supporters to embody. Instead, the Iranian Revolution of 79 had produced an Islamist theocratic regime, and by 82, the Palestinian Revolution had been eclipsed by a civil war in Lebanon, by the PLO's demise as revolutionary leader, by Israeli aggression, by intra-Arab fratricide. And historians tell us third worldism came to an end in the Middle East somewhere around 1979. So in the book coming out of this project, we ask, if this is true, then how did those championing the third worldist revolutions in Palestine and Iran perceive of that end? So in the project, we aim to connect sort of the macro history of third worldism as a global phenomenon to new micro histories of personal, social, and political ideological change in the two movements in question, and in the transnational entanglements of their struggles in the 70s and early 80s. Such a connection between the different scales, we argue, can help us explain how long gestating, interrelated, unresolved dilemmas and challenges for third worldist revolutionaries materialized in crisis. These, of course, included formidable external challenges, hostile counterinsurgency and intelligence operations, disinformation and propaganda, surveillance and infiltration, assassinations, intimidation. But there were also internal dimensions of this crisis that pertain to questions about inclusivity and priorities, about theory and practice, and about means and ends. In the case of Iran, we have a number of studies in the book showing how gender and gendered inequalities came into the revolutionary movement, specifically among female revolutionaries who traveled to Oman to join the Dofar rebellion. Maral Shamshidifar is writing about that, has written about that. We have a chapter on the issue of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and how that caused a deep rift among the national liberation movements invited to Tehran as allies of the new revolutionary state. We have a chapter, and that's by Mohammed Atoyi, and we have one by Mariam Alemzadeh about how the uh, Islamist state tried to navigate and perhaps dodge the fact that the struggle in Palestine was spearheaded by a secular Marxist group, the PLO, and not an Islamist group. And we have a chapter by Simon Fuchs about how envoys of the Islamic Republic in 82 met numerous obstacles in their outreach to the downtrodden masses of the global south as envoys of the particular vision of third worldism that the Islamic Republic had sort of 
formulated after the expulsion of the leftist forces, many of the leftist forces in the revolution. My own contribution to the volume is a chapter I co-wrote with my dear colleague Jahangir Mahmoudi, who is based in Sanandaj in Iran, a young historian working on the Iranian left and the Kurdish national question. Our chapter explores this still understudied, despite this growing literature on, on the Iranian left generally, and a growing literature on Iranian Kurdistan specifically that I'll return to, still understudied topic of solidarity between, on the one hand, the Iranian revolutionary anti-imperialist left, represented here by the Badai, and proponents of the Kurdish liberation struggle. And it raises the overall question, what were the possibilities and limits to third world this solidarity looking inwards and not outwards, so between Iranian revolutionary leftists and Kurds. To limit ourselves, we focus specifically on 79. I mean, the, the chapter in scope just exploded, and we found out there's more than enough to write a whole book if we just expanded with a couple of years, but we're now limiting ourselves, <coughs> limited ourselves to only focus on 79 and the uh, violent in, uh, events in Kurdistan immediately following the revolution and how these were interpreted and influenced by the Fadayon. So drawing on Persian and Kurdish language party documents, publications and eyewitness accounts as well as a series of oral history interviews we've carried out with participants, we argue the following. That the conundrum of the national question in Marxist theory coupled with Persian-centric and nation-state-centric views entrenched on the left, came into direct clash with the third-worldist ideal of solidarity with oppressed peoples, in the case of Kurdistan in Iran. This clash arguably contributed to the failure of a leftist and secular alternative to the emerging Islamist dictatorship under Khomeini. And I'll take you through our findings and arguments. So first, there's a basic lacuna, I think, as a basic lack in the existing research literature. First of all, on the Kurdish movement in Iran during and immediately after the 79 revolutions. There's some recent work out now by people like uh, Alan Hassanian, which I think is really important and helpful. But there's still a, a need for sober research engaging with primary sources, including in Kurdish. And on the other hand, there's also a lack of research on the relationship between the Iranian left and the questions of minorities or the national question as it was framed at that point. So we argue that one of the reasons for this is that there is a general tendency in Iranian studies to avoid these issues. They are highly sensitive. This sensitivity is palpable both among participants in this history to be written, so for example former activists or sympathizers writing new histories on the left, of the left in Iran, as well as among some academics who in their research tend to be focused on Iran's geographical and political center. Are they Paul-centric, Persian-centric, Tehrano-centric? We can discuss the vocabulary. But the result is that the brief mentions of the Kurdistan conflict, for example in standard textbooks or even in specialized books, often contain factual errors, sweeping assumptions and partial narratives. It also means that Kurdistan, the Kurdistan issue is rarely dealt with directly or comprehensively in the burgeoning literature on the Iranian left. We have um, good examples of how new books are being written about the Fadayan, but Kurdistan is still playing a minor role in those books if they're mentioned at all. Second, as this was a slide from the original um, 
proposal, I have to talk about the urban question because it links up to the second argument is that although the pre-revolutionary Fatayon was heavily urban-centric, it's presented as the quintessential urban guerrilla, right? And arguably also steeped in sort of a mainstream Persian-centric view of history in its analytical outlook and strategy, there were nonetheless very important early voices in the organization pointing to the revolutionary potential of Iran's peripheries. While much of the Fatah literature treated the city as the engine of revolution, which in itself is a thing I discuss uh, in, in, another, in another chapter, um, the Fatahs also conducted surveys and had important discussions and publications about the agrarian question and generally about rural life. One could mention here, and it's a very broad range of genres, but uh, the works of Behmuz Devan, the activities of people like Ushan Azami Lorestani, as well as numerous essays and field reports by anonymous capitalists. A lot of people went to went to the people, as they would have said during the Russian Revolution, right, uh, to find out <coughs> how do ethnic minorities live in the periphery, how do the rural masses live. And most important for this study uh, are the references to the minority question, and particularly the Kurds, in the pre-revolutionary theoretical political discourse of the Fatayon. This includes works uh, by the key theoretician, Bijan Derzani, sometimes also writing as Safoi Farahani, appears to be, it appears to be that the, the work published under the name of Safai Farahani, according to Rahman, is actually Bijan Jazani. As well as works by uh, Mohammed Chupan Zadeh and Ali Reza Nordel, also known as Bolftar. And again, numerous texts, long and short, published in different Fadai organs. In these works, the Fadais developed a conceptual language with which to discuss the question of minorities in a completely novel way for a Persian reading audience. I think this is a very important finding. <coughs> in contrast to the singular khalq in the name of the organization, it very the father is quickly understood and developed an understanding of ethnic minorities as khalqa in the plural, or peoples. Sometimes they also slipped straight, straight from khalqa to melakha from the nations. This was again novel, it's novel in the Persian context, obviously there are clear links to uh, a Leninist heritage and, and to a Soviet-inspired uh, heritage in many ways. Even when they didn't call them Melat or nations, it was implicit in the key terminology that minorities were in fact nations. Iran was Kasiru Melet country, a multinational country, a country consisting of many national nationalities or nations where one dominant people subjected the smaller ones to Setamemeli, national oppression. Hence, as a revolutionary Marxist organization, the Fadai had to recognize the Hakta Taini Sarnevesh, the right to self-determination for peoples such as the Kurds, on the same level that they would recognize that right for other oppressed nations such as the Palestinians. All of this was, of course, rooted in a specifically Marxist-Leninist framework, Everything from the advent of nation states to the state-driven cultural homogenization campaigns under Reza Shah and the resulting politicization of minorities could be explained in terms of the contradictions arising from different modes of production and the relation between capital and imperialism and how these contradictions lead to class struggle. Therefore, the oppression of minorities was theorized as Satan Mozart F, 
subtle oppression under both capitalist and imperialist oppression of both foreign and local regimes and ruling classes. So we can argue the, the case of Kurdistan provided the Fatayan with an important example of what they believe to be a great potential for revolutionary change embedded in ethnic diversity. Firstly, the Kurdish struggle was presented in pamphlets and books as truly popular. And this is the holy grail, right? It is the struggle popular. Unlike the Persian-speaking core of the cities, the Kurdish movement already had mass popular support, according to the Fatayis, and they didn't need a mobilizing vanguard. In fact, due to the Kurds' cross-border nature, the movement even enjoys support outside of Iran, an important transnational factor that could potentially help drain the Iranian state under the Pahlavis uh, from repressive resources. Secondly, the Kurdish struggle, as it confronted the ruling elites not just of Iran, but simultaneously those of Iraq and Turkey and Iran, was therefore automatically anti-imperialist. And this is a quote from Fadeh since the ruling elites of all three had in common that they were imperialist-dependent regimes. So the Kurdish movement was in nature anti-imperialist in this rendition. And it's interesting because this framing turned the old left's argument against movements such as the Kurdish as being bourgeois in their nationalism on its head, and it aligned the Fatah view on Iran's ethnic minorities with a third worldist understanding of national liberation struggle and as tied directly together with the anti-imperialist struggle. In other words, the Fatahis were duty bound to support struggles such as the Kurdish. A Fatahi pamphlet argued that a broad united front should push back against, and I quote, any kind of bourgeois and petty bourgeois narrow-mindedness in regards to the national question and put an end to this fratricide by accepting the right to autonomy for the Kurdish people, which is another key phrase. So these statements, as much as they appear to be outlining what was arguably the first critical <coughs> Iranian leftist program for supporting minority struggles, were at the same time, time counterbalanced by two facts. Firstly, while they identified culture, language, history, and a shared sense of belonging as key traits of the oppressed minorities, they rarely, if ever, specified what the right to self-determination should entail in terms of territorial realities. Indeed, <clears throat> all discussions of minority self-determination came with a clear red line drawn against separatism, a phenomenon that the Fadais deemed to be limited to reactionaries, and dependent bourgeoisie elements within the minorities pursuing purely selfish financial gains from aligning future breakaway countries with Western imperialist powers. And as we shall see later, this limitation imposed on the discourse of self-determination self would be a source of constant ambiguity and hesitance among not just the Fatimian, but also other leftist groups during the revolution. The overall point with discussing minorities in pre-revolutionary Fatah literature was clear. It was about identifying tactics and strategies to mobilize minorities against the Fatahi state. Hence, the Fatahi ideologues called on cameras to travel to minority regions, as I said earlier, and, and rule Iran generally, and study local conditions in detail. But the result of all this accumulated pre-revolution work was that the Fatahi was probably the only of the big radical left organizations following the downfall of the Shah to clearly elevate the issue to a national question. However, it was actually only after the revolution, <coughs> and importantly, 
with the grassroots initiatives of local Kurdish Fatahi supporters and not as a specific Fatahi strategy of the central campus that regions such as Kurdistan gain practical and tangible attention. So a quick little background on Kurdistan and the revolution. We're all, often told in the literature that Kurdistan was, was quiet during the, uh, during the uprisings of 78. Uh, that's not completely true. Uh, there were numerous demonstrations and protests. It could be argued that one of them actually was a key event in Kurdistan that helped strengthen the revolution's momentum at a time when the overall protest movement was otherwise dormant, which is also interesting to discuss about what we're seeing in Iraq. But I'll get back to that. So on 7th of June 1978, the corpse of Yusuf Azizi a Kurdish uh, opposition leader, a long-time political prisoner, was returned to Mahabad for burial, and this occasioned a huge rally with impassioned revolutionary speeches, among others by the Kurdish religious political leader Sheikh Ezzeddin Husseini. All that said, it is true that the revolution picked up pace much later in Kurdistan than in Iran's big cities, and the reason, I think, was simple. The securitization of Kurdistan after 53, and specifically after the armed uprising in 68, which is an important unwritten chapter of, or more or less unwritten chapter of Iran's modern history, there was very little room for political mobilization in Kurdistan. The clampdown uh, was a fresh memory for the Kurdish population, and part of the question, answer to the question of why Kurdistan was a latecomer to the revolution. And on top of that, I also believe, and this comes out of our interviews, that Kurds were arguably hesitant about political developments in the center. They simply wouldn't know if the, those developments would be in their favor. However, when the Fadayan did enter the scene in Kurdistan, they quickly turned into a force to reckon with. In fact, in 79 to 80, the Fadayans played a, a, a very important, and again in the, during the 80s, a very important and somewhat understudied role in Kurdistan. And this was the despite a number of logistical obstacles and also fierce competition from other political groups. The KDPI, or PDKI, the Democratic Party of Iranian Kurdistan under Abdul Rahman Khosanu, the Komaler, a new organization built on earlier underground activist cells known as the Tashkidat, a socialist organization. The forces around Masoud Barzani, or the Kriyodeh Mouadat, which was a political force that quickly turned pro-Khomeini after the revolution, or was at least seen as such. The forces around the religious leadership is that Din Husseini that I just mentioned, and also other uh, non-left, if not outright, right-wing Islamist groups like the Maktab al-Quran of Ahmad Mufizadeh, and then several smaller leftist groups with a smaller following, but above all, a burgeoning scene for Jamiats local councils that sprang into action and took over affairs in many Kurdish cities right after the, the downfall of the Shah, and again, a very interesting topic that someone should work more on. And in this sprawling environment, the Fatahis had by all accounts a very significant following, perhaps specifically among the urban and educated Kurds, and to some extent also beyond that class. Why was that so? To answer, we need to take into account the transformation of the traditional Kurdish political parties, so the movement was under change. Under Barcelona, the KDPI took a turn to the left, but even this was too little too late for a new generation of, of uh, Iranian Kurds, for example, those studying in, uh, in, uh, in Tehran and Tabriz. They were instead attracted to the Tashkilat, the proto-Komalat group, or to the Fadayan, 
who were both staunchly leftist and embraced the Kurdish demand for autonomy of Mukhtari. And this combination stood in sharp contrast to the Tudor party, which rejected those Kurdish aspirations. So the revolution led to an outburst in activity. By the spring of 79, there was an explosion of political and logical, social and cultural activism. It was in this environment the first Fadari branch was established in Kurdistan. While in the early days of the revolution, uh, there were some landmark events, <coughs> the eight-point declaration in Mahabad, presenting a uh, represented by an almost complete and united front of Kurdish forces to the interim, interim government of Bozargan on the 19th of February 79. But after that, events quickly took a violent turn. Around Nowruz, uh, clashes between various Kurdish uh, factions led to, in Sarandaj, led, led to swift and violent response from the new communist regime. These events and the, the dawning realization that the new regime was not going to live up to its promises of protecting minority rights and meeting demands for self-rule led to the Kurdish boycott and referendum on the Islamic Republic on the 30th, 31st of March. Despite several attempts at reconciliation and ceasefires, numerous clashes and all-out war periods would wave back and forth over Kurdistan in the coming months. There was the battle over the radio and TV center in San Antaj in April, bloody clashes in Nakhadeh also in April, the battle of Mariwan in July, the battle of Pawe in August, and then Khomeini's declaration of jihad against the Kurds in end August which led to renewed battles throughout the region, and again, another flare-up in October. Suffice it to say here that <coughs> we, we try to analyze the Fadali's stance and their involvement in each of these uh, historical events. I think it's uh, enough here to say that these events and the plethora of involved actors with deep historical roots and significance uh, for the demand for autonomy did not make an easy job, an easy situation for the Fadali's. But there was something else apart from apart from sort of the changing <coughs> realities on the ground. There was also a generally uneasy relationship on a deeper theoretical, ideological, and strategic level between the Fatali stated aim of liberating minorities or nations and their continued privileging of Iran's territorial integrity. This uneasy relationship or tension, we argue, was semantically represented in the discourse by the adjective Sarosari or nationwide, added as an adjective to a struggle external to and yet subsuming and overruling the Kurdish struggle at particular times in history. It indicates that the Sarosari piece of the puzzle is actually more than a piece of the puzzle, it's the, the, the sum of all the puzzles in, in this. Uh, chaotic situation. As the situation developed in Kurdistan, we see how Sarosari slowly takes over the discourse as a way to postpone the discussion of how to reach the goal of the local struggle, the, Kurdish, the demand for Kurdish autonomy. So the tension between the national and the local, which was nonetheless also described as national, can at least partly be ex explained by a legacy of Marxist-Leninist ideology. The class centrism and privileging of anti-imperialism over local demands. Or it can also be explained at least partly by a lingering Iranian nationalist Persian centrism, a resistance to the idea of giving non-Persian minorities the same power 
through the right to self-determination as those of the largely Persian-speaking dominant core population. This not only comes to show when the Fatawid dis uh, discourse juxtaposes local and Sarasari, it also shows when they reduce demands for self-determination to cultural issues, or when they sanctify Iran's territorial integrity as a sort of a red line that cannot be crossed, or when they underestimated the potentials for Kurdistan as a Fatawid stronghold. The tension also becomes particularly evident when seen in light of the third world discourse, the same ideological imaginary that shaped the Fatawid vocabulary on the national question the, about <coughs> oppressed nations in the plural created a no-win situation. The national liberation becomes undermined by another national liberation struggle. It might even be argued that the third worldism in the particular context of Iran becomes reduced to nation-state-centric view that forces its proponents to tactically turn a blind eye to internal subalterns, and I will return to that concept. Parts of the explanation for why the central organs of Fadayon eventually abandoned, abandoned Kurdistan was due to at least partially the undemocratic nature of a leadership following a Marxist-Leninist-Stalinist organizational thesis of democratic centralism. So we argue that the Fadawi leadership was so <coughs> class-centric in its policy and strategy and so committed to the idea of a mass democratic revolution led by the working classes that they tended to move the issue of the national question down the list of priorities. I don't know if the same could be said about women's liberation, but it's a discussion worth having. As anti-imperialism gradually came to overshadow the class question for the leftist forces during 79, a development that started right after from the earliest months of the revolution, but peaked following the U.S. embassy takeover in November, the national question simply dropped even further down the list. And when the national question at the same time emerged as the most important question for Kurds, the Fadawis were unprepared. So while this often mentioned anti-imperialist consensus was certainly an important factor, it was not the decisive factor behind Fadawis choice to abandoned Kurdistan as an issue. Even when rejecting the Khomeini line that Kurdistan was being exploited by the US and Israel, the Fadawis still had other forms with accepting the broad demand for autonomy. These forms could, uh, should be located in a very rigid understanding of how a mass popular democratic revolution led by the working class would establish socialism. In this rigid prescription, the Kurdish demand for anything more than cultural autonomy came to be seen as a distraction or even a deliberate distortion of the struggle. Hence, even though the Fadayan was engaged on a crucial battlefront in Kurdistan against the Islamic Republic, in the end, the leading cadres now split into many factions, and I don't even have time to get into that, decided to abandon the Kurdish front and leave the Kurdish issue altogether in 80, leaving only splinter groups of smaller groups and individual fighters. And this was despite the fact that the Fatayon had, perhaps correctly, predicted that if the struggle in Kurdistan failed, it would pave the way for the Islamic Republic's eradication of all other revolutionary forces in the name of the Vilayat al-Fatih and its fascist dictatorship, and that's a quote. This arguably also happened in Turkmen Sahara, in northeastern Iran, when the Fatayon first lined the locals against the Islamic Republic. The reason was simply that the Fadali leadership could not find a solution, and, and perhaps one couldn't expect them to. 
They saw the Kurdistan issue and now also the Turkmen Sakharov issue as potentially dragging all Fadayi resources into an unwinnable war that would derail the socialist revolution. The nail in the coffin was the September 1980 Iraqi invasion of Iran. Okay, so to conclude this part, so the Iranian revolutionary third world is left, exemplified here by the Fadayi, but could also include other groups. <clears throat> faced a serious challenge when it came to marginalized people, especially when their plight was treated in terms of a national question and the right to self-determination. This placed the Fadais in a conundrum. They could be not solved in a situation of post-revolution turmoil, neither with available ideological prescription nor through popular mobilization and strength. How to balance, on the one hand, an anti-imperialist struggle inevitably pitting an existing nation-state against Western powers with, on the other hand, small and non-dominant nations and their struggle for the right to self-determination. And the aftermath, I think, is, is relatively well documented and covered, uh, even though more scholarship uh, is required. So the continued war-like state of Kurdistan combined with the Iran-Iraq war, the splits in KDPI and Komale, the KDPI Komale civil war, the exile of numerous Kurdish activists to Iraqi camps or asylum in Europe, the near total annihilation of a functioning militant left in Iran following the prison, uh, followed by the prison massacres of the late 80s, the reconstruction of political opposition groups in exile, and finally, the rise of a new Kurdish movement in the late 1990s. So where does that leave us in terms of the relevance of studies like this for our present conditions? <coughs> um, Okay, so studies like this, I think, and, and also my earlier work, at least my first book, uh, Minorities in Iran, are part of a broader critique of Iranian studies. A wave of studies uh, over the last 20 years, I guess, um, has systematically questioned the person-centric outlook in history writing that often involves silencing or marginalization of minorities and their histories and their role in what we term Iranian history. At the forefront of this critique, we, we find, among others, uh, colleagues such as Professor Conrad Martin, who recently wrote a short piece grappling with a way to theorize this critique in relation to broader questions of power. Martin calls for nothing less than decolonizing Iran, among other things, by, and I quote, challenging the epistemic colonialism of the hegemonic trends within Iranian nationalism and nationalist historiography. Specifically, Martin proposes that we treat the case of Iran's minorities in terms of inter-subaltern colonialism, and that was what I flagged earlier. Here, with colonialism understood in contrast to its Eurocentric definition as foreign domination, but with foreigners referring to the historically, and I'm quoting, the historically changing and politically reconstructed relations of cultural exteriority, and with domination as specifically non-hegemonic rule within bounds of capital. So it's a very specific kind of attempt to broaden uh, the usage of the term colonialism. Martin explains that inter-subaltern inter, uh, colonialism as follows, and I quote, post-colonial states' ideological reconstruction of stateless peoples within their territory as ethnic minorities, which are ontologically securitized and hence subjected to political, cultural destruction, assimilation, or subordination as well as economic exploitation, resource extraction, and environmental degradation. It may very well be that what is needed is a deconstruction of colonialism as a concept, 
uh, as part of an explanatory framework in order to counterbalance not only the erasure of so-called minoritized peoples, but also to enable us to even discuss demands for recognition and autonomy. It may very well be that the term colonialism will not lose its analytical power when divorced from its historical context and expandedly used in cases such as Iran. I hope this is something we can discuss together in a forum like this. I will, however, interject with some a little bit of critique of the critique. As Martin also himself mentions elsewhere, uh, and as I have discussed at great length in my first book, and also in a recent article written together with Professor Kevin Harris, there is an inherently uh, an inherent pitfall of essentialization to discussions about ethnicity rights and power in Iran. Since ethnic minorities have again become more vocal and allow and have been allowed a little bit of voice in post-revolution Iran, it has also forced the majority um, to consider themselves as Persians. So there is a, a paradoxical result of the growing attention to ethnicity that also can turn into an essentialization of the majority. Are Persians in the Persian language the awkward ethnonym Fars even to be considered an ethnicity? This is something that has sparked huge discussions in sociological literature in Iran. And if a Persian-speaking Shiite center residing Iranian does not identify as Fars, does that mean he or she is in fact hiding his or her true identity as the elusive majority? oblivious to the fact that he's part of the, he or she is part of the dominant majority? Or should there be room for not identifying in ethnic terms for Iranian? Should it be possible not to identify as false? These are enormously important and very difficult discussions that we obviously cannot answer easily. It demands much more historical research into the question when and how did false become synonymous with what is in fact an approximation of a majority, but in reality, at least in the reality a critique of Iranian studies, very often a shorthand for dominant political and intellectual beliefs. And similarly, as we may have noticed, I didn't in this lecture, and I don't consistently use minoritized instead of minority. I'm very sympathetic to my colleagues who want to do that. I just think that it's fair to remind that a similar aversion to the using the term minority is also to be found in the mainstream nationalist, Persian-centric historiography and social sciences. The argument here being that these peoples and their cultures and identities are nothing more than local and in fact subcultural expressions of one and the same thing, Iranianness. The nationalist line dictates that minority is in fact a Western invention injected into places like Iran to cause cultural balkanization and even promote separatism and threats to Iran's territorial <coughs> integrity. So all that being said, I do think that there are several things we as historians of Iran can do to make our research more attuned to the critique, not just our own specific research, uh, not just our own specific research, but of mainstream history and social science in and about Iran in general. So first of all, we obviously need more histories of Iran written from the viewpoint of peripheralized areas. Yes, and I used the, uh, the iced uh, version, grammatic form here, to indicate the active process of turning somewhere and someone into peripheries of something else. There is arguably, arguably still a tendency to relegate histories of the peripheral regions of Iran 
and regions cutting into Iran uh, elsewhere outside of Iranian studies. This is despite a growing number of critical studies, but the problem is more than just Persian-centric gatekeeping. If we really want to peripheralize the center and center the periphery, we need a more expansive definition of Iranian studies. The argument, of course, relates to a broader discussion about the relationship between area studies, the history of area studies, and the relationship of area studies to, say, global history or social sciences in a broader sense, and the question of methodological nationalism, which is, of course, part of something like Iranian studies, right? <laughs> it's in the name. So there might be a need for some kind of undisciplining and redisciplining. In the concrete case of this research project, me and my colleague, we've had to ask ourselves exactly where should we publish this. I mean, the one thing is the work we've done for the book, it fitted neatly in there, but the rest of it, where does it go? Is this histories of Iran, when we write about the Kurdish view of Iranian history in this particular stage? Kurdish studies, I don't think so, maybe. Is it Middle Eastern studies, perhaps? The reason is, of course, that the Kurdish issue is transnational in more than one sense. But by insisting on its relevance to Iranian history and Iranian studies, we also need to think about new geographies of Iranian history. Again, I don't have the answer to this, but I recognize the challenge of countering methodological nationalism while not dissolving the field and making ourselves useless. <laughs> Specifically about peripheries and minorities, we need as a field to have a sustained discussion about the difficulties and complexities in doing this research. Some of that discussion is methodological in nature. Who, for example, has access to a field such as Kurdistan? It has long been recognized, but perhaps not sufficiently debated. There are myriad problems for being a scholar based in the West, trying to do field work and archival work in Iran. Many of us have, for different reasons, become field workers without a field, or historians without archives. Another issue is language competences. In an ideal world, Many of us should be trained or uh, fluent in more than one language from Iran. I, for one, am not. I realize how much that limits my research, uh, especially when I work with, with Kurdish scholars. There is a persistent, unspoken myth in Iranian studies that the peripheralized peoples of Iran do not have archives or that they do not have substantial sources to study. And that's clearly wrong, as demonstrated in wonderful work by colleagues such as it would be a very important achievement if this same attention that Kurdistan is receiving now would also apply to, say, Baluchistan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, and so on. This fact that our field is often in many ways limited by a focus on Persian sources is one of the reasons I really strongly believe in collaboration. As global and comparative historians have long argued, the kind of multi-perspective work needed to break out of Eurocentric modes demands collaboration between scholars fluent in different languages and with access to different archives. A similar argument could be made for our field. Which brings me to collaboration with scholars inside Iran. I hope I'm not alone in thinking that this division between Iranian studies outside and inside Iran is not only antiquated, but also detrimental to our field. We need to bridge this divide. We need to engage in a much more comprehensive and systematic fashion and learn from colleagues, of course, inside Iran and systematically make sure that they know of our work and it's available inside Iran as well. I know all the difficulties and 
I hope that we as a field can be much better at collaborating directly with people inside Iran, despite and with a discussion of all the dangers and dilemmas involved here, the constant securitization of all kinds of research in, inside Iran, and with sanctions and institutional self-sanctioning hampering so many initiatives from the outside, we need to have a broad discussion about the ethics and security issues entailed by collaboration. So to conclude, I believe we have to some extent peripheralized the center and center the peripheralized. Specifically, when it comes to minorities, we have to have these difficult discussions about, for example, the benefits of applying colonialism to our analysis. This is no simple task at a time when even mainstream experts and some scholars are willing to perpetuate the idea of a separatism threat emanating from minorities. And to return briefly to my opening remarks about making history relevant, if there is a new movement of let's call it intersectional clarity in Iran taking shape these days, then what can we learn from that brief, intense moment of some kind of intersectional clarity in 79 among forces such as the Fadayan in Kurdistan. Third worldism is a strange phenomenon. It is at once finished and done. It's a chapter in the history of places like Iran, where it ended somewhere around 1979, and at the same time, it seems like third worldism hasn't even really begun yet. Has not yet been born. There are potentials inherent in the early and in many ways unsuccessful attempts to formulate an intersectional analysis of solution for Iran that seem to have once again found new life in this new protest movement. Of course, the new shapes, but with echoes of the past that are too important to overlook. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I think there's an enormous number of issues raised by this paper, and, and some of them are very contentious. Yes. So I'll begin by, by throwing a couple of comments at you for your reaction. You talked about this tension which continued to exist in terms of viewing minorities, and Kurds in particular, as an oppressed nationality. I think you used the words ambiguity and hesitation on the part of the Fedayan. And I wondered to what extent that, that kind of tension has been really resolved. Because it seems to me that the Fedayan solution was to kind of kick it into the long grass and hope that events would resolve this issue. It is very difficult to resolve on the theoretical issue, on the theoretical level, Precisely because, as you described, the ideas about national self-determination are derived from a very clear tradition, which began with Marx and continued with Lenin, about the conditions under which um, separatist movements should be supported. But that tradition grew up in relation to different circumstances. Because for Marx, the question of self-determination applied to Ireland. For Lenin, it, it applied particularly to, to Poland and Finland. These are distinct national entities. And the offer to them of autonomy or separation does not represent any threat to the oppressing nation. When you come to look at the Middle East, you have a much more complicated question. Because these are primarily uh, foregrounding ethnicity. Marx and Lenin did not depend on ethnicity. They depended on pre-existing, juridically recognized sovereign territories. 
Now, when you come to look at the situation, we, we saw it in, in the case of Iraq. This gives rise to all sorts of problems on the practical level. And it's one thing to talk about these things from a theoretical point of view. And uh, Kamran Mateen's work is very interesting, but I'm not sure how much it helps us resolve that kind of continuing tension. The other thing I'd like to ask you is, um, the institutions of the state, it's quite interesting, I think, that um, when you look at the Middle East now, you see a series of state collapses. The interesting thing about the Iranian case was the state survived and it was taken over, essentially. So Khomeini was able to put together the army very quickly. The army had it showed a lot of signs of strain in the 1978-79, but it was there, ready to use, and he did use it. Um, and I wondered what, if you can tell us anything about what the army is doing now in Iran and the police. Because the disintegration of the coercive arms of the state is one of the first signs of a real revolutionary movement. And I'm wondering if that is happening. And my third point, really, the other interesting thing and perhaps quite unique thing about 1979 is that it, these political forces work themselves out in the Iranian context, partly because America was still so weak after the failure, the defeat in Vietnam. The Soviet Union simply wanted to calm things down. So the Iranian arena was left for Iranian forces to fight it out among themselves, and they did so, and Khomeini won. What I'm wondering now is to what extent you think the situation in Iran is being distorted by the regional and global conditions that, that Iran is facing. I mean, we know, for example, that the Israelis were working with the Iraqi Kurds from the 1960s. Is there that kind of thing happening or not? So those, those are my wow. questions. <laughs> you ask me questions about Iran today, and oh my God, I, I, I have nothing. <laughs> I will do my best to... Um, okay, the first, the first one about solving the tension. Obviously, you're right, and they realize it, the father, you know, that the literature they're drawing on, whether it's the question of the the urban nature of the revolution, or whether it's the question of national right, uh, the right to self-determination of national minorities, that they're drawing on a literature that isn't relevant to Iran. And this is actually a very important finding, I think, in the, I mean, we should also sort of lower our expectations to the Fadayan literature, because most, most of them had a very, very brief lifespan before they had time to actually sit down and think about conditions in Iran that were either killed, executed, or you know, imprisoned, uh, and much of the work is actually done in prison. Right? But they did, they did manage to develop a quite sophisticated answer to this question of the, the tension between the universalized ideas of what an ideal struggle should be and the local conditions in Iran. So works like Bijan uh, Jazz are very important. It's one of the arguments I'm making in the other case that I didn't really talk about today is that instead of seeing there's this this fetish in uh, sort of Western scholarship on third worldism about mapping out how the different in fingers influenced each other and how the ideas traveled. What I realized reading the urban question, I uh, originally assumed that it was a trickle-down effect that revolutionaries in Iran would read 
Cuban and Maoist literature and be inspired by that and then make their strategic decisions. But it turns out that they already knew, even before it was told to Father Ion, that the revolution in Iran wouldn't start with guerrilla uprising in the countryside, even though the first family attack was in the countryside, but there was a very clear decision from the beginning that there were some deviations and some discussion, but they saw it as an urban revolution that would happen in Iran. So to me, that shows that the Fadayan were clearly aware of the limits of the applicability of existing Marxist, Leninist, Stalinist literature on minorities, for example. And they even say that the, the situation is not comparable. They discuss some of these uh, different ideas inherited from from Lenin, for example, and how they are applicable and not applicable to the Iranian situation. But it's such a it's, it's a hugely complex and very very difficult discussion, and and it's quite clear that sort of the social theory of ethnic minorities among the Fatahs was only beginning to take shape when the revolution happened. And a lot of it was done sort of as they went along. They had to improvise a lot. I think that we, the, it, I'm interested in this semantic slip where they begin to talk about Khalqor, like peoples, realizing that there are more than one people in Iran. And the tension then between the idea that no, Iran also has to be unified as one people against imperialism. That, that tension, I think, is very clear in the literature and it's obviously not solved by the Fadalis. And it's not solved today at all. I think you can go to any demonstration in the Iranian diaspora, at least, and we'll see uh, huge discussions about whether the, the Eastern Kurdistan flag should be waved at these protests or not. I know for sure that uh, that's something we hear about in Denmark a lot, that <coughs> some of the, the Kurdish opposition is hijacking the Iranian movement. Is the, what, what people are saying in that very limited context, but it's uh, there was a really interesting discussion around the big uh, Berlin demonstration organized by Homeless Manion, where they had invited representatives from ethnic minorities to speak, and there were very different opinions about that. The, the, the debate is very heated. And I think also, I'm biased when I say that there's like a sort of dawning acceptance of the fact that ethnic minorities suffer a particular kind of discrimination because that's mostly a university phenomenon, I'm sure, and among intellectuals and thinkers. But what, I, what is interesting is, prior to this uprising, the first time I really noticed something along the lines of what we're seeing today in terms of inter-ethnic solidarity was around the water crisis in Khuzestan, where a lot of, like, even like celebrities and, and people on, uh, you know, important voices on Persian, Social media brought attention to Khuzestan in a, in, a, in a very systematic way and a comprehensive way. Where before, you could sometimes think that those were two different countries, Tehran and Khuzestan, but the bridge is being built. So I, I hope that means that that's beginning of Iranians finding a solution to this question. But I also want to make sure that I think it's important to listen directly to the Kurdish organizations and, uh, and activists when they say, time and again, that they're not separatists. And this is also something we hear from the Kurdish organizations uh, in this moment of time in 79. Again and again, they also have to sort of preemptively defend themselves against the accusation of separatism. But it's like the idea of or self-rule hasn't been 
communicated to the Persian-speaking center in a way that people can understand is not a threat to the territorial integrity of Iran. And that's a job, obviously, that I don't know who has to carry that burden, but it is quite clear that it has to be addressed because otherwise there will be more and more radicalization and there will be separatism and there are separatist elements in the different regions. It's just not my impression, and I mean, I may very well be wrong, but it's not my impression that impression that it's the majority of people in these regions who support separatist solutions. So about the army and military today, every time there's a new video on social media saying, you know, news from Bukhan or Sakres about this battalion has defected or this colonel has defected and is now on the side of the people, it always turns out to be wrong, unfortunately, so far. But of course, this is something I think experts all over the world are looking for, like signs of defection. Apart from isolated videos, you know, of former servicemen making a video at home saying, you know, I retired, whatever, uh, hereby declare my support for the people's uprising. Those are very isolated incidents. We're definitely not, I don't think we're anything near sort of the mass defection that tipped the balance. And very importantly, in Kurdistan, it's not the army, right? It's the Sihah, it's the revolutionary guard who's being, uh, being deployed now. So where you have the security forces and police uh, do most of the repressive work to build the Basij in the centers and the big urban centers, you have tanks moving into Kurdish cities. So there's always this uh, unequal distribution of, uh, of repression. Whether or not for foreign powers are distorting the situation in Iran, well, in a sense, I think diaspora Iranians are playing a much bigger role this time around, and diasporic media stations, many of them, obviously, and this is no secret, financed by Saudi Arabia and Israel, and pro-monarchist media and stuff like that, they obviously do their best to influence the situation. There's no doubt about that. Whether or not it has a real tangible effect on the ground is, is something that someone should by doing proper ethnographic research. I, I honestly feel like I'm way too old to even speak about these things because none of us have, in my generation have imagined that there would be this political potential that we're seeing on the streets of Iran these days. The idea was the kids, when they sit and chat on Discord and uh, you know, whatever they do, they are not, they're depoliticized, they're not involved in politics, but obviously we can just see from the the aesthetics of this movement that they have a very refined and advanced understanding of politics in the 21st century and also of tactics and, and tactics of mobilization and this is the big discussion right now what is the next step so the movement can't continue with the strategy of just spreading out a thin layer of civil disobedience all over the country to sort of uh, drain the repressive forces they have to also now is what I hear from discussions, organized sort of more centralized protest in order to take the next step forward in the protest movement. If that's even possible in, in that situation in Iran, I have no idea. I'm just amazed by how brave people are and how radicalized they are in their demands. Nobody is asking for reforms or reformism as far as I can hear. They're asking for regime change from within, right? which is, of course, opens up a whole range of questions about what would be after. So, yeah. Okay. So I'd like to thank Rasmus for such an interesting and provocative account.
and uh, thank you to the audience for your attention. And we'll see what happens next. Yes. So thank you.